courtroom is the only place in America where elephants might be able to fly. I've seen these interrogatories. They look like they're from the devil. What if your best friend is a physician and a priest? Sometimes judges do the damnedest things you've ever seen, and that was the ultimate. If anybody asks you, this is the story. The reason they take deposition is for impeachment purposes. Stare him in the eye. Stare him in the the eye. Oh my God, we're a year and a half into this. This is show business for ugly people. Lawsuit fans, it's good to be back with you again. It's Greg, it's Mel, it's Rick, and it's now October. Rick, where does the time go? <laughs> it feels just like yesterday. We yes, it Seems like yesterday, doesn't it? <laughs> That's all right. In August, we did a themed issue. It was a little atypical. It was the issue on low-risk chest pain. Low-risk chest pain. What do you do in the context of the guidelines of the American College of Cardiology, which have recently come out? This is going to be another themed issue. It is about So You've Been Named. We're going to take this right from the beginning of the case all the way to the end. And our expert here, obviously, is Dr. Henry, who has himself been involved in many, many, many lawsuits. (laughs) (laughs) Again, there's only two reasons you teach this course. (laughs) You've either know it or you've been sued enough time. Without further ado, let's get into this. And Mel, are you going to give us a case we're going to discuss today? Sure, why not? And I do believe that this is going to be a classic because so many people ask me, what do I do now that I've got sued? So this is going to be everything you need to know, everything. So here it is. You've got a 54 actor on the ABC TV lot. A 54-year-old is what you're referring to, of course. (laughs) And he complains of chest pain and tightness and nausea and vomiting and lightheadedness. He presents to a local emergency department where he is treated for what appears to be acute myocardial infarction. He's given heparin pyre to the receipt of a chest x-ray. The patient dies several hours later from... A ruptured ascending aortic aneurysm. You, Could this be anyone we know? <laughs> well, you're an emergency <laughs> physician and the family is in the waiting room. Okay, so what are the do's and don'ts? This is obviously a case where you know you got big problems on your hands. Lucy, you got some splaining to do. Yeah. <laughs> so you know that there's a problem. The family's in the waiting room. You know that everything is going to be scrutinized very carefully. So let's go through a couple of questions before the lawsuit arrives, which you know is going to arrive. Well, let's talk about one other thing, though. When you've got somebody who's relatively young with chest pain who you think's having an MI, I would certainly hope that the first time the family sees you is not when you're about to give them the bad news. You've got to remember, if you've gone out and told them this person is having an acute myocardial infarction, they're already set up for at least some degree of a bad outcome. He's not in there for indigestion. You've started to give heparin. You've called in cardiology. All of these things, as we know with this case, were done. And there were excellent people involved. So the family needs to be brought along before the moment you inform them that they've died. So I went out there and I informed them and I talked to them and I tried to be nice. 
What's the first thing I should do? Well, don't um, use the good news, bad news ploy. Which everybody is, who has husband or spouse in the emergency department that's alive, please stand up. Not so fast. Not so Mrs. fast. <laughs> that's right. That, that or the bad news is he's died. The good news is there's a guy here who wants to buy his suits. You know, I mean, we're not going to use that. First of all, I think that in talking to the family at that moment in time, you know there's going to be emotional reaction. There has to be. A relatively young man, a father a wife, make sure you have your people assembled, that there should be somebody who stays with that family, a nurse, somebody from pastoral care, somebody who will be available to help them out. They've got people they need to inform. And how they're dealt with at that moment in time can have a great bearing on how they view the entire case. So I think that's when you really need to do it. This whole question about saying you're sorry that someone died Saying you're sorry is not the same as saying you're guilty. I'm sorry when people die. That doesn't mean I did anything wrong or that anyone else did anything wrong. By the way, I would not go into all of the details of certain things at that moment until they're ready to be approached with that. No one hears anything in the two minutes after they're told that their father or husband has just died. Now, we set this up acknowledging that this doctor, this emergency physician, knows that there's a problem, not because of the death, but because he probably aided and abetted this death by giving this heparin kind of thing. doesn't generally work out very well in the setting of aneurysms. No, it certainly doesn't. By the same token, we are not held to the standard of perfection. We're held to the standard of reasonableness. If after reasonable workup of the case... We believe that the problem was an MI. Then starting the heparin, which was probably the protocol at his hospital, is not an unreasonable thing to do. So I should express my regrets. I should say I'm really sorry. Here's what happened. In terms of he came in, he was very sick. He ended up having a dissection and he died. So I should do that and shouldn't feel that that's going to mean that I'm actually telling these people that I screwed up and you should sue me. Yeah, I don't want to sound Pollyannish here, but it's hard to not do well with the truth. At some point in time, all the facts and details will come out. And every study on this has said the same thing. If the doctors were up front with me, well, that's okay. If they tried to pass it off or didn't give me the information or they weren't completely honest when they did their presentation, now I'm mad. And in this country, mad equals I want vengeance, which means they're going to find an attorney. All right, I got it. So let's go a little bit further. You realize on rereading your chart, okay, this guy's died. You're like, uh oh, this is not going to go well. Before you okay. go further, right. can we go back to that family All again? Right. Would it be appropriate, in your view, to say, family, I initially told you I think dad was having a heart attack? We subsequently have determined he had a ruptured aneurysm, and that appears to be the cause of his death. Now, you don't have to necessarily say, oh, by the way, we gave heparin, which was not a good idea. So you're suggesting that you're telling them the truth, but you're not telling them everything right then and there. I think there's a time when a family is willing and able to listen to the entire discussion. At that moment in time, that's not the kind of detail they either want or need. The other thing is, for the physician involved in the heat of battle, I'm not sure that he picks the right words to use at the right time in explanation. And I think that there are lots of people who do this for a living who are into disclosure to families who will tell you that till you understand the facts completely, 
and understand what went on. Don't be throwing out wild ideas because they'll pick up on any words or comments said at that moment in time. And that may not be what you wanted to convey at that moment in time. So at least think about this before you go running off at the mouth. All right. So you realize after you sort of went back from the waiting room and you've talked to the family that you reread your EED record and you realize there's some areas that need some clarification that maybe they should be augmented a little bit. What are your opinions, Greg, about modifying the record at this point? The one thing you never do is go back and make entries to a record to try and make it look at something you did at an earlier time. Everybody has left things off of records. When you want to add to a record, you date it and time it correctly and put in addendum. Here are the things which I forgot to put in up above. Is it self-serving? Of course. Is it honest? Absolutely. In every case I've been involved in where a physician has tried to quote-unquote doctor the records, not only have they lost, but it's inflamed the jury. Just be honest about it. I don't think there's anybody here who hasn't had a chart in the last two days come back to my box, which we missed on dictation. For some reason, the dictation got halfway through, and then they had some problem with the machine. I had to finish the dictation. What I don't do is pretend it was done at the same time. Well, I'll put in is late dictation, chart back to box on such a date. Here's what I remember the rest of the case. It's at least honest. Well, there seems to me to be two time frames, though. There's one like this. You've got a bad case comes in, a spinal cord injury, a death, and you're writing your chart up after sort of the smoke is cleared, like with this guy. Uh, he's died, and you're still finishing your chart. You're going to tend to write a very glowing, wonderful chart because you know the chance that this is going to go to a lawsuit is pretty high. So if it's 15 minutes after the events, does that really matter? That's still kind of how you do charts in real time. Well, that's how you do charts in real time. And I think that the fact that you know that this could be a problem down the road, I would certainly spend my time. Again, I never advocate doing anything dishonest. Lying is bad for the immortal soul, but you're not dumb either. What you know is if you see something coming down the road, make sure the details of what you did and your thought process are down on that piece of paper. Also, anyone else who was involved, I got Dr. Smith from cardiology, I got Dr. Jones from thoracic, I got yada, yada, yada. I want you to have that kind of detail on the chart when you know something has gone wrong. So that's very different from, I saw this patient six months ago, I now get a lawsuit, and then I try and go back and change the chart. That's an absolute no-no, right? That's an absolute no-no. More than that, anything written after the first couple of days is what we call a novel. It's fiction. If you honestly believe that in the 40 patients you saw over the last few days, when a chart comes back to your box, unless there was something terribly unusual about that patient, coming up with the details is always a little difficult. Now, is there a right way to do it, though? Let's say you get the chart back. I've been sued. I get the chart back, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, wow, I really remember this guy because he was sick, and there's a lot of details I've left out. Is it appropriate? What are the pros and cons of saying, look, here's a new piece of paper. I'm timing and dating it six months after the events, and I write appendum to my chart. Here's the things that I remember. Yeah. What are the upsides and downsides of doing that? It's perfectly honest. Again, the plaintiff can say, well, it's interesting that now that you know something's gone wrong that you remember. But that's the way memory works. Memory is a cascade. There's none of us who hasn't walked into a room and, for example, the olfactory 
stimulation of something, and it brought back a memory from 20 years ago. Or we've seen something that just caught our eye, and we remember something from way back in medical school. It's the same way with all memories, and most people understand that memory is not necessarily linear. It is a folding cascade. If it's honest, if it's the truth, this is now what you remember about the event. Put it down. I'd rather it down on a piece of paper so it can at least be discussed than nothing down as the record, because I'll tell you right now, now when it's being tried five years later, believe me, you're not going to remember it as well. So it's not necessarily going to hurt you, it may not help you a lot, but doing that is not going to necessarily hurt you. Nope, and you know what? It's honest. And again, if W.C. Fields was right, you can't beat an honest man. But clearly the wrong thing to do is you take your pen, you get the chart from medical records, and you scrub things out, you write over the top of it, and you're going back to the original chart and modifying it. That's a complete no-no. Henry's Law, once there's been a problematic case... That chart, the original chart, needs to be taken, copied for use, and the original put away someplace. I don't want you to add a comma, a period, a dot. I don't want you to touch it because then the implication is that you're trying to modify the chart and make it look like it happened at a different time. Yeah, you told us one time about some chart where they had pulled off the copy and the copy was in one place, and then somebody went back to the original and wrote, and they were able to say, the original is not like the copy. Absolutely. This must have been done after the copy was pulled out. You postdated this note. Yep. Well, what it then becomes is a confrontation. And as I frequently say, you as a physician only go to court with two things, your reputation and honor and your chart. If they can put a hole in either one, you've got a problem. Those are the two things you protect at all costs. What if I have no reputation and very little honor? <laughs> Just going with my chart, I guess. Well, then, then write a great chart. As they say, the great doctor deserves a great chart. The mediocre doctor needs one. Oh, there you go. I like that. Now, one of the things that I think we need to state unequivocally is that this note that you write after the fact, which is not a part of the chart, is discoverable. It is intended to be discoverable. You have to write it as if the plaintiff's lawyer will be having it. You cannot write, note to self and my attorney, here's all the things that you need to know kind of thing. No, don't do that. That really does look self-serving. What you're doing is you're correctly and properly appending something to the record, but it's done in the correct form. And when it's done in the correct form, you never have a problem. Well, let's make the distinction here. Can you not write something knowing that it is discoverable, that relates to your care of this patient, which is not in the record. You've written this three, four, five days later, a week later. Now that you've been sued, you're trying to re recall all of the facts that you can, knowing that it's going to be a ways down the road when you're actually going to be at the deposition. So you're trying to get all of this on a piece of paper. I think the point is, is that no, it's not going to be part of the record. It's not intended to be part of the record. It's part of my personal notes regarding this case to help my memory. Here's the, some of the other things that were going on in the department. It was busy. We got, just got the hemophiliac bus accident coming in. All of these other extenuating things would not normally be in a record, but you wanted to put there. Well, if you want to put them there, what I would do is add them to the record, the official patient's record. Don't keep records at home that say my personal notes on a case. 
because that's always going to come into question. After all, you do this for almost nobody else. Why would you do it for this one? If they said, doctor, do you often append records? The truth is, yes, we do. It's not that uncommon. Well, to be honest, you could say, I really thought that this was going to result in a problem. And there were extenuating circumstances in the department at the time, which wouldn't normally go into a patient's the record question. that I think you need to know about. Yeah. Why wouldn't you have it a part of the patient's record? And here's the reason why. Let's say there is no lawsuit that happens in the next two years. That doesn't mean that this person's record doesn't deserve your true remembrances of the case. We keep records for multiple reasons. And it's certainly the most important one is not for our own protection in lawsuits. It's for eventual care of patients, for families, for lots of reasons. So I think that anything I write down these days goes into the patient's record. I do not keep separate records on patients. Interesting. I think it's interesting, too, because I think that obviously I don't have any of the experience that you do, but I don't think it would be unreasonable to do this, acknowledging that it is discoverable by the other side. So that what I'm suggesting is if you do this, write it very, very, very carefully, whether it's a part of the patient's record or it's not. Because you could reasonably ask, have you written other things about this record other than what's in your memory or recollection of this? I'm just telling you, it doesn't send the right message. The right message is we're open, we're honest, everything we do ought to be an open book, why would you have a secret file on a patient? I don't understand. It's not a secret. It's just basically saying there are some extenuating circumstances that occurred in association with this patient's care because there was another patient in bed three who was exsanguinating at the time. Then I and, want and that we, in the, the and, official record. And we had two nurses who were call in sick that day, and the clerk was a registry clerk. There's nothing the matter with that being a part of the official record. Because you know what? Why would you not have it? part of that record which the plaintiff can have. We either believe that they have a right to the knowledge and information you have or you don't. And if it's honest and it's true, why not? Why not put it down? I've just never seen it where that was a problem, telling the truth. As part of this discussion, you do it two days later when you're like thinking about this case, like that didn't go well and I'm writing it. There hasn't been a lawsuit and you're saying just write the note, put it in the chart, get it in the record. Are you saying something different, though, five years later after you've been sued and you've decided, I need to write some extra notes? Not five years, no, because I think that I'm talking about something that is done two, three, four days later. You know that this is a bad case right from the get-go. You know that it's highly likely that you're going to be sued. You know that at least this is going to be a peer review kind of issue, and you want as many facts to be included in this, which are likely to be not traditionally included in a patient's record. So you know you're what? saying there's no downside. Just I'm saying chart. there's no downside. He wants to maintain the facts. I'm just saying if you're going to maintain them, maintain them in the patient's record because when it goes to that committee, review committee of the hospital, they ought to have that information as well. They shouldn't have to be looking for you to bring in another piece of paper to explain or defend yourself. He okay. wins. You're fired. Okay. I give up. <laughs> uh, you win. Uncle. <laughs> Okay, let's go to the next section that we wanted to talk about, which is the hospital performs a root cause analysis and you are invited to participate. Should you participate? If so, should you have your attorney present to represent you? You don't have attorneys present unless they have attorneys present. 
I mean, this should be a mutual seeking of truth, the root cause analysis meeting at the hospital. If they want to then take action against your license or consider reporting you to the state or something like that, yes. Or modifying your privileges at the hospital. That's absolutely correct. But a root cause analysis should not be confused with an actual proceeding of the medical staff against your license or your privileges, as Rick points out. That's absolutely different. Hmm. So is this stuff all discoverable? Let's say you've got a case went bad and then you go and have this root cause analysis and you have your risk management committee does stuff. Uh, the plaintiff's lawyer is able to say, let me see all that information that you did there. No. In almost all states, true quality assurance activity, which this is covered under, is protected. Now, you have to know which state you're in. As we've mentioned many times, Nevada is not good on this. Michigan is excellent on this. California is really quite good. But the state has set it up so that quality assurance activities, which a root cause analysis is part of, is neither discoverable or admissible. This is the hospital's way of improving its care. And you can't have that open for a free-for-all, or what happens is nobody does it correctly. Well, you know, these root cause analysis are usually done by hospital employees in the risk management department or the quality department, and they are done not necessarily in the context of a medical staff committee. They may be brought to a medical staff committee, but they are being done independently because that's the thing you do these days, root cause analysis. So the question is, is that root cause analysis protected because it was done outside of a committee? That discussion occurred. All of those discussions occurred outside of the medical staff. I honestly don't know any root cause analysis committee which is not a part of a quality assurance system of the hospital. Its root cause analysis then must go to some other committee for action. Those materials should be protected under law. Now, again, it may vary state to state, but at least my experience has been those types of investigations in the vast majority of states are protected from discoverability. Okay, so the next thing occurs now, they have done a root cause analysis and determined that that heparin really probably ought not have been given prior to that chest x-ray, which was kind of one of the cores of the contentions of the plaintiff's attorney. So the root cause analysis is now done. The hospital has decided that there has been a mistake made. Most of the hospitals now are into the full disclosure mode. They decide to call in the family to tell them about exactly what happened because we didn't tell them exactly what happened when the patient actually died, as you suggested. Now we have all the facts that you suggest be obtained. Now we're ready to talk to the family. They want you there. That's going to be kind of a sweaty situation. It is, and that's why a lot of experts in this field don't think the doctor actually involved should be sitting there. The chairman of the department or the vice president of medical affairs or someone else should actually be there. The problem with having the doctor who actually saw the patient right there with the family is it's uncomfortable for both sides. To the family, they associate his or her face with that death. To the doctor, he feels badly about an outcome. You certainly can do full disclosure without having the doctor there. In fact, Rick Boothman's program at the University of Michigan, which is one of those that's very nationally known, basically doesn't think anyone should be doing the disclosure who has not been counseled and trained as to how these things should go on. This is not everybody and his uncle showing up to to give an opinion. This is somebody who's going to help the family understand what went on. 
Well, you know, I've heard this before. Doctors haven't been trained in this apology matter and in this disclosure matter. Where do you take a course in disclosure? I don't know that I've ever seen anything. Some people seem to be quite good at it in terms of their interpersonal skills are good. And they tend to be the risk management people at the hospital because they're used to apologizing and finding out what really went wrong. But not everybody has this skill set for well, sure. Well, Rick, I invite you this month in Chicago at the ASAP meeting to come to our session on apology, what it means and how to do it. So there are ways oh, you darn. Was that a setup? <laughs> it was a setup. <laughs> but we really need to think about this for a minute because there are a lot of things where doctors are not the best person to lead that discussion. The other thing is, there's usually somebody on the hospital staff, the risk management staff, who will maintain the relationship with the family, help them understand everything that went on. Because someone received heparin doesn't mean that a reasonable doctor might have done that. Even after analysis of this, there can be controversy about these things, and they need to understand there was no malintent here, and there's perfectly reasonable people who would think that that would need to be given. Okay, well, let's step back and say for the sake of discussion that the physician did something which is unequivocally a mistake. Right. Unequivocally. Let's not get into the theoretical what could be, could be not, because we all know that sometimes we do make mistakes, and those mistakes are associated with bad outcomes. The procedure went wrong. The diagnosis was wrong. The treatment was wrong. And it was clear that it was wrong. Right. It so, was a violation of the standard of care, which was proximately related to a harm, is what you're saying. Right. So let's make that assumption as we go through this case a little further. I've got another specific question. What if they go before the privileges committee and they say, look, we have to withhold your privileges. You're not allowed to do conscious sedation anymore. You're not allowed to intubate somebody. What about when that happens in your hospital? Should you bring your attorney to that? Let's say it's really getting ramped up. So it went through the QI process and they said, look, you really screwed up here and we're going to withhold a certain set of privileges from you. Should I fight back? What well, should I do with that? Remember, attorneys aren't there for the technical discussions of the medical care involved. They're there to see that the process takes place. What you want to do is if you believe that the process has been short-circuited or that they haven't given you what they call remedy, that is, what if I take 10 different courses, come back in four months, set up a remedy for this restriction, then the process has probably been violated. That's when you may seek legal counsel. But the key here is, did they follow the agreed-upon procedure? When you join a hospital staff, everyone that I've ever been involved with, you have to sign for the rules and regs of the hospital that you got a copy. Now, what you're supposed to be signing for is that you read it. We're not going to go there. But funny thing is, rules and regs of hospitals are sort of like insurance policies. Nobody ever reads them until they get into trouble. But that's what the attorney is for, is to make sure that they have followed their own policy and procedure. And by the way, that's where hospitals screw up the most, is in not following their own rules about how these things should be done. Virtually all of them have some sort of mandatory process and way that you can regain your privileges. And if they're not taking you through that system, then they probably have violated their own policies. I think at least in California, if the hospital restricts your privileges, that has to be reported to the Department of Health or the medical board kind of thing when there has been a restriction. And that restriction may be you cannot do 
conscious sedation without a proctor right. for the next six or something like that so that, in fact, your privileges have been restricted. Yeah. By the way, if you haven't seen a copy of your State Board of Medicine bulletin that comes out monthly, they have pages and pages of physicians who have been put on restrictions, mostly for drug abuse, abnormal sexual contact with patients. Versus normal sexual contact with patients. (laughs) Well, absolutely. Remember, this is a matter of who's interested here. But the third area is procedures or health care that they have limited until they receive certain other training. So if it happens in your hospital, almost every state, there may be one or two, but every state that I'm aware of, they have to then pass that on to the state medical board which then puts a tag or something on your license, which, by the way, they can share with other state medical boards that you're currently under supervision for particular procedures. Well, it certainly comes up even before that level because when you're filling out a form to take privileges at a new hospital, they always ask, have there been any restrictions on your practice at the prior hospital? And so if you have to tick yes to that box, that's a big red flag. I don't think I've ever given a deposition when they say, Dr. Henry, has any board, state medical board, or hospital ever restricted your privileges, limited your privileges, done something to your privileges, that comes up in every discussion that happens. Okay. It's the implication that this is a bad thing and I can use this to make you look bad Absolutely. And win the case. But it's interesting because you said that's not a good thing to have happen to you. I can tell you, having been on the hospital's boards for a long time, that the medical staff is very reluctant to limit privileges yes. because they know of the downstream. Event. And in fact, their knowledge of the downstream consequences really often inhibits them from doing the right thing. Yes. Because yes. they bend over backwards not to restrict privileges because they don't want to be required to report Gentlemen, them. Gentlemen, the job of this forum is not to be doctor apologists. We're just kind of calling it like it is. And I couldn't agree with you more, Rick. I've known people who clearly the hospital should have taken an action against their medical care, and it didn't. But the physician needs to understand what their rights are in the process. It's a process, and that's what attorneys are about, following the process. And, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting because you're suggesting that the only reason to bring in an attorney when your privileges may be restricted is to make sure that the hospital is and the medical staff is following its rules and regulations, not to advocate that you should not have your privileges restricted. <laughs> Absolutely not. No attorney's job is to look at the science of the medicine involved. The only thing they can look at, and believe me, they go over these hospital rules and regs with a fine-tooth comb, is to see that you've been given the options that are available under the rules to remedy, remedy the deficit. Okay, got you. Okay. All right, so you get the thing in the mail, and you feel very bad about it, and you want to talk to somebody. So I call up Rick. You know, Rick, I really screwed up. I missed the sciatic dissection, and I just want to talk to you about it. Was that a good idea? No. Or is it just because it's Rick? Or Well, <laughs> Rick excluded. First of all, Henry's Law is nothing good comes registered mail. If it's registered mail, it's bad. That's the rule. And now something has come from either an attorney or your plaintiff's attorney or from your state medical association. I would keep all discussions in two groups. You can talk about how you feel about anything you want, how this is affecting me, how it's affecting my marriage. You know, it's given you uh, higher golf scores 
and fewer erections and all that sort of thing. That would be bad. Yes. You can do it any way you want, but do not talk to another physician about the specifics of any case or medical care with it's outside the protective shield of a quality assurance meeting. When I meet with one of my own physicians and say, we're going to talk about this case and what happened, you understand this is a quality assurance meeting. We keep documents on this. You know, I'm the chief of the department. This is now a quality assurance meeting. This is what we're doing. That is easily defended. If you're just pleading your case, and I promise you this, I've never met a doctor, myself included, who when they got sued or something bad happened, didn't want to plead the case, say to their friends, well, what would you do in this situation? Isn't this what you would have done? We're all looking for absolution. We're looking for medical absolution and forgiveness. We're not necessarily looking for the truth. And so keep comments about the case to yourself or to the quality assurance physicians, but don't be talking to people. The other thing is, do not be wandering around in the department asking nurses, techs, type-in people, other people to want to discuss or hash the case. I don't think that's a good idea. And by the way, I've also seen that in virtually every deposition of a defendant physician, they've said, have you discussed this case with anyone? Because they want to know who they can call in and see if they could pick up any remorse or unhappiness or comments as we might make like, well, I probably should have done this or I should have done that. They're looking for that sort of thing. So don't do it. So probably I'm guessing that what I'm going to say here is probably also a bad idea. When you go to the nurse involved in the case and you say, if anybody asks you, this is the story. It might be a little different from the truth. Tell them that I did everything right. I'm guessing that that's probably a bad idea. No. <laughs> no, no. More than that, I think that in general, the process has a way of sorting itself out. The nursing staff, they have quality assurance that they're required to do, just like physicians do. And again, loose lips sink ships. Stay out of making frivolous comments, unnecessary comments about anyone's care or case. And please, do not start blaming others. You don't know all the various factors involved. The last thing the hospital wants is a doctor who's saying, well, if X-ray had only been in here 10 minutes earlier, this wouldn't have happened. You know what? Keep those comments to yourself because you don't know how those fit into the larger picture. Although you can certainly see, based on your recommendations, the isolation that you will feel when you know you feel bad about this case, you acknowledge you, you probably did screw up, and you're not allowed to talk about it to anybody you're not allowed to talk about the facts of the case to another physician and understand that... But that's it, what you want to talk about. You don't want to say, you know, I feel really terrible about this case. Well... That's it. All I can tell you is do it then with somebody who's part of the Quality Assurance Committee of your department in a quality assurance meeting, because otherwise it could be, depending on the state, discoverable. And I don't want them, Rick, bringing in another doc who's been playing father confessor here and have that person have to then, and most of our fellow doctors are perfectly honest people. If they ask them questions about what did he tell you, they'll answer it. If they weren't honest people, they'd be lawyers, okay? <laughs> no. And they are going to answer the question. That's the problem. 
Right, and I frankly, I know that. And I have been involved in cases where they specifically asked just what you said. Who have you discussed this case with? Of course. And if you've discussed it with four or five or six other doctors, you have to name every one of them. And it's like, oh, my goodness, kind of thing. So your right advice is right on, right on. I was just commenting that it is painful because a lot of these doctors are going to be suffering, and they do want absolution from their colleagues, just as you've suggested. Yeah, not only do they want absolution, but there is a grieving process that goes through any lawsuit. Whether we want to talk about this or not, physicians are badly damaged by this system. Or can be. Well, the problem is they take it too seriously. It isn't just business to them. This is the central core of their personality structure. You know, we made the comment once before, you can call me a bad father and call me a bad husband. We'll have a drink to that. But don't you ever call me a bad doctor because now you're getting personal. And now you're threatening what I do for a living every single day. It's my justification. So be very careful how we do this. I think a group ought to have something available to docs who are under stress. Someone that they can talk to, counselor, somebody that the group pays for, so that they can vent some of these emotions. Because it is a lonely experience. Emergency medicine is a lonely business because we are like single entities that go in to see patients. We don't work with each other. We work next to each other. We don't work as a team of doctors. Almost all the work I do is one doc making a decision on a patient. I did a lot of work for the military, and the Navy is the most integrated system in the world. It takes 5,000 men to put a plane off a ship. Unbelievably complex. The Marines are totally different. If there's one Marine left with his rifle, he will kill you. And they view that exactly the same way as emergency docs. If there's one emergency doc left with a finger, you get a rectal. And that's kind of the way it's going to go. I think I've worked out a way to get around this. What if your best friend is a physician and a priest and you go into the confessional? Is that discoverable in the confessional? You know what? I think the and confessional... And then you cross the international dateline <laughs> and, I mean, and then and then and then... I think the confessional is probably the only safe place for this to go on. And so if he's also aboard an emergency deck, I mean, it would be, be, uh, it, it would be very, very <laughs> helpful. Bless me, Father, for I have given him before I got the chest x ray. There's going to be a line out in front of the confessional going that's around right. the block there. That's right. Mia Copa. Yeah, yeah. Mia Copa. A lot of people converting to Catholicism. <laughs> All right, so your insurance carrier contacts you and indicates that you have been assigned an attorney for your case. You don't know this attorney. You have no idea if they're any good. What are my options? I want Ginsburg. I want somebody I've seen on TV. Do well, I have options? Yeah, first of all, don't go to them and say, well, my brother's an attorney and he's on my side, this and thing. You know, stop. Attorneys are like physicians. They specialize in doing certain work. The last thing you want is somebody who does slips and falls to defend you in a medical malpractice case. I mean, Rick's wife is a wonderful attorney if you have wills, trusts, and estates. She wouldn't want to do one of these things to save her soul. So don't you be hauling in an attorney that doesn't do this for a living. By the same token, it's perfectly fair to ask your insurance company, who is this guy or gal? What is their experience? Do they do a lot of med mail? I want to meet with them. And if you're uncomfortable in the meeting, then you can talk to the insurance company about saying, you know what, I'm concerned about this. Probably a third of the work that I do as an expert comes from people who have 
met with their attorney and insurance company and say, I want you to send the case to him. It works the same way with choosing lawyers. If you're uncomfortable with that situation, with that lawyer, be honest with that lawyer and say, I'm not sensing that the defense here is going correctly or I feel very, very uncomfortable in this. Most lawyers don't want to be your attorney if you're uncomfortable with them. They don't want the case. And the insurance company doesn't want a reputation that they're not supplying good people. But don't think you can just walk in and ask, you know, for Melvin Belli and expect that that's going to happen because it's not going to happen. Well, there's a couple of issues here. One of the problems that I see is that many what I would consider to be ordinary physicians who are truly not experts are often serving as experts in some of these cases. Rather than, as an example, I'm familiar with a case, it was about a back problem. Now, there are emergency physicians who have done a lot of literature and work and publishing on backs. And the attorney wanted to use one of his local guys here in Los Angeles. And to my knowledge, this was just a working ER doctor kind of thing. Maybe he had a good physical presentation. Maybe he was good in front of a jury. Maybe he was good at depositions. But he was truly not an expert in the area of concern. We suggested that, in fact, at UCLA, there was a doctor who was an emergency physician, board certified, knowledgeable, presentable, and who was truly an expert because there's this definition of an expert which is really not an expert. You know, we've gotten into this before. Experts are somebody who does the same thing you do, but they're not a bus driver or they work in your yard kind of thing. Yeah, they're yeah. another emergency uh, time, doctor. Time out. The term expert is used totally differently in law right. than it is in medicine. You and I, if we're looking for an expert in DNA work or something, are looking somebody who's published 60 papers, who's a professor, who's done this and that, who's perfected techniques. That's not what the legal system is looking for. So we've got to get that out of our heads right now. They don't care. And the 12 people they picked for the jury, remember, those are the people who couldn't get out of jury duty, those people aren't necessarily as impressed with a huge curriculum vitae. They may be looking for somebody who can explain to them what the issues are. I was just involved in a case two weeks ago where against an emergency physician, they brought in a cardiologist to talk about chest pain. That cardiologist doesn't even do regular cardiology. He's an electrophysiologist. But I'm talking about an emergency physician who's going to represent you. Wouldn't you like somebody who was, to the extent feasible, truly an expert in the matter of which we're discussing. I want discussing. them to be reasonably expert, but there's 10 other qualities I want them to have, Rick. And we will talk about that in a little bit. But I think that what you don't realize when you're first sued is you do have some power and some options with the insurance company. And you certainly have some input into who you don't want as a lawyer, that's for sure. And secondly, once you and the lawyer start working on the case, you do have input they usually do ask, is there somebody in this field who you think would do the best job at representing this particular kind of case? That's all. the only point I was trying to get at. Yeah. You should be aware of your options here. Right. Do not necessarily accept, this guy works down the street, another ER kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, but let's... Necessarily. It, okay. But let's be honest about this. Never go to court with a nerd. If somebody has got 100 published papers in the area and you can't tell what the hell he's having to say, that's not an expert to me. That's not the expert I want representing me. I want somebody who understands the ball field, somebody who is savvy, who is smart, who understands a lawyer's questions. 
All of those things are important when you're getting yourself an expert. And this is where the emergency doc can help out. This is interesting. And actually, it's a little bit of a revelation because I guess I had that narrow understanding that an expert should be the guy with the biggest CV. I want Peter Rosen, and I you know, put a stack of textbooks two miles high. If he I, says I didn't screw up, I can't be wrong. I'm proud to say this. Big isn't necessarily good. Thank okay. And so the biggest CV is not necessarily the one who gets the best response from the jury. Again, that's my simplified view. I thought basically your lawyer will say, this guy is clearly an expert, 100 publications, he knows everything, and all he has to do is say he didn't screw up. But you're saying it's not like that. It's he much has to more do, complex. He has to do much more than just say, here's my CV, he didn't screw up. He has to present to the jury, talk to the jury, do lots of other things. Oh, my God. We're a year and a half into this. This is show business for ugly people. This is show business. If you don't understand that there's a presentational aspect to this, then you've missed the mark here. I can go down the list in emergency medicine of people who are very well thought of experts. And the amount of papers they've got in a particular area is almost never the deciding factor. It has to do with the entire package. Do they know how to dress? Do they know how to speak? Do they actually understand whether the jury's understanding their discussion? Do they know how to teach in the courtroom? Do they understand how the opposite side is going after them? What are the counters? What are the obvious counter answers to these various things? If you think the science will save you in this case, you're sadly mistaken. What about if I want two or three experts? I want Jerry Hoffman and Greg Henry and Rick Bucata and Peter Rosen and every big name. I want five of these guys in there. That's almost always limited by the court. If the plaintiff says he's going to have two experts as far as the issue involved. Now, there's two issues. One of them is the science involved. The other one may be what is the standard of care for an emergency doctor. So they may actually have a, a terrible chest pain case or, let's say, an aneurysm case, and they have a thoracic surgeon who talks about what the operative repair and what the percentages of a successful operation But then there's always going to be an emergency doc who's going to talk about the diagnosis, the time frame, the real world in which we live. That's a different setup. I've seen it where the judge will limit each of the issues to only two experts. So if they have two emergency docs, you can have two emergency docs. I've seen them limit it to one. And causation is different than standard of care. And so you may have a standards expert and a causation expert. And those are really different roles and often require different kinds of people. But you would think, from the reasonable man point of view, that if you could have two or three or four experts, that your chances are better than having one. But understand this, no attorney on either side is going to let one side come in with four people and them have one. They're just not going to do that. And the judges, actually, whether we think this or not... They really don't like redundancy. Is he going to ask the same questions to four or five different people? They don't want that because the jury is not near as much into this as you are. And now they're listening to their third or fourth or fifth expert. They're tired now. They're bored. One case where the judge actually had assigned the bailiff to go around and and shake people who were sleeping. This is a bad sign. This is a very bad sign that the case is not going well. You know, law is very much like medicine on TV. On TV, you get to see the hard-hitting, brutal parts of anything, you know, the great parts of ER, so to speak. Most of our work isn't like that. Well, most of the law isn't like that. 
and most people presenting to juries are duller than whale poo-poo. <laughs> and after a while, they go to sleep. You don't want too many experts. All right. So let's go to the next phase then. You are sent a very detailed list of questions from the plaintiff's attorney, and they want you to answer these. Your attorney reviews them in advance and indicates, look, here are some that you should answer, here are some you shouldn't. What advice do you give regarding this step in this very painful process? Well, first of all, you have to understand each question has to be taken one at a time, and sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it depends. And, for example, if they say, List all the treatises you've studied which give you the treatment for this disease that have taught you how to treat X disease. My answer to that is, for the treatment of disease, I depend upon the totality of my training, experience, and all things which I have written which are beyond the scope of this inquiry. Thank you. Move on. See, I've seen these interrogatories. They look like they're from the devil. (laughs) <laughs> if you were to answer these questions, they see your lawyer goes through them first and says, this is an improper question. This is an.... But they do say, what are the books in your library that refer to this that you've read in the last number of years? It's like, I have no idea how to answer this question. No, my standard answer is, I write textbooks. I don't read them. Oh, and, uh, that's okay. Oh, good, great. We can, it's not going to help most the of rest us. Most of us won't be able to <laughs> help out there. But there are ways where you can... And should your experts help you in this regard? Well, or should well, your attorney help you? Here's the question. Interrogatories you, get terrible. You've never, ever seen an authoritative text. Authoritative means it's right. What you can say is the following are useful books, which are maintained in our department as reference. And then I would put the tagline on. None of them are authoritative, and none of them lay out the standard on any specific patient. Understand, we write every book in general. You have to take the specific patient in front of you and your backup and your nursing staff and your attending physicians you can call in and what else is happening in that department that night to decide what the reasonable care is. So if you think that book will solve that problem, wrong. It won't do that. All right. So you really do, though, it sounds like, have to rely on your lawyer helping you out with that because, there's a, like you say, the first vetting of this will be these are completely inappropriate, and I don't know what's completely inappropriate from a legal point of view. Yeah, well, you won't get it until they reviewed it, but what's left could be very painful. Yes, it can be painful. They will ask questions that you don't necessarily like. Obviously, you should be able to answer a lot of questions with your curriculum vitae, too, where you went to school, when you finished where you trained, what have you written, what committees you've been on. And so a lot of these things are answered by reference to the CV. But when they get into other things, oh, oh, and if there's ever been an action against your license, never, ever, never deny that sort of thing. Because all they need to do is catch you in a little lie and you're in trouble. You know, it's interesting because we see that in the credentials committee with some frequency where... They forget to put down something that happened to them in terms of restriction of privileges in another hospital. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, it was an oversight. So they're basically claiming, oh, I forgot. You know, it happened five years ago. But it always is a convenient forgetting. Yes, right, of course. Never do that. Because if they can bring that up, it's amazing. I actually have seen this to the point of ridiculousness in one very plaintiff-oriented judge in Detroit would not let us bring in the fact that one of the experts who'd given his deposition, he gave it while he was in Milan Federal Penitentiary. 
And, of course, his lawyer says, well, that would be prejudicial. The jury would be angry because he was actually a convicted felon at this time. Yes, they would be. Sometimes judges do the damnedest things you've ever seen. And that was the ultimate, when they wouldn't let him show that he'd been convicted of defrauding the federal government on billing charges and was in Milan Federal Penitentiary. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't show that. Well, all right, so now it's time for my deposition. And I screwed up an aortic dissection case, as we have in here. So do I now go and hit the books and read everything about aortic dissection so that when I give my deposition, I sound brilliant? Well, you should at least be aware of the textbooks that you've had and you've trained with. I would not do an extensive study of the issue other than to understand why what you did was perfectly reasonable at that moment in time. But you should be aware of what it says in the four or five major texts in our field and understand that that's where the plaintiff is going to have gotten the questions. There's a reason that they have an expert. That expert is going to go through the major texts and write down various things which have been brought up. You should at least be aware of what's going to happen. Should you have your expert there when you're giving your deposition? So uh, Rick's my expert witness. Should I say, Rick, can you come? I'm getting deposed tomorrow at 12. Yeah, most places they wouldn't allow that. And the reason is this. He has no standing to be there. A standing, right? Yes. If, <laughs> what if I'm sitting? Well, if you're sitting or laying down, which would be your usual situation. But I think that the court could limit an expert being there unless there was some other reason. For example, I was at deposition recently, and, of course, that was making their expert quite nervous. He's an unhappy guy because I'm there. The guy says immediately, well, we'd like Dr. Henry barred from these proceedings. And I just said, I'm the official representative of the doctor's group involved here. If, counselor, what you're intending to do is drop us from the case and our insurance policy from the case, I'll be happy to leave. So you weren't acting as an expert, though. I was not acting as the expert. I was there, and so he could not get me barred because I was the representative of a party. If you're not the representative of a party at interest, they probably can bar you from the debt. All right, so I'm going to this deposition, and it's tomorrow. I'm really anxious. I want to know a couple of things. Should I get a beta blocker? Because I start to stammer and sweat, and how should I dress? Should I put on a sari, or what do I do here? I think that if you're going to deposition, you ought to look like a doctor who's doing real business. I mean, a sport coat and a tie is just fine. As far as taking medication, it has now become standard technique. It's become derogare that lawyers ask this question deposition. Are you taking any medications of any kind which may have made this deposition chemically enhanced in any way? so that you wouldn't understand a question or you were overly relaxed. Is there anything you're taking I should know about at this moment in time? I don't think that taking a beta blocker is necessary. I think the best thing you can do is go in and listen to the questions carefully. So the next section then is big. So what specific advice about how you give your answers, volunteering extra information? How do I do that? Well, answer the question that's on the table. You don't have to educate the other side's attorney into every aspect of the case. You've got to remember, theories of the case change. These guys change the theory of why something went wrong more often than they change their underwear. They hear one expert and they say, well, okay, that's why he died. And then they hear a next expert and say, okay, no, we're changing our pleadings. That's why they died. Don't give them more than they need 
But by the same token, when they ask a question, make sure your answer is understood. You will occasionally get that mean dog who's going to say, Doctor, yes or no? I don't need a speech here. What I usually say is, Counselor, you wouldn't want to deceive people reading this. You have a right to ask a question. I have a right to answer it to my satisfaction that the question has been answered. And you need to do that. So in the same way, then, if they're trying to put you into a little tiny narrow, they're trying to trick you up, you can tell. Can you turn to your lawyer and say the way this question is phrased is completely bogus? Is there some way that you can get around that? Well, what are the tricks here? What you really do is if they ask a question, you've got to decide, Counselor, are these the facts as you see them in this case? Because if I take this question as a hypothetical with the facts that you construct, then this may be the answer. But they have nothing to do with the facts in this case. And you have a perfect right to say that. Are we constructing a hypothetical here, Counselor, or are we talking about the facts of this case? Because they're totally different. Okay, I'm all right with it. I think that the prior comment that you made, I've seen these depositions where it's yes or no. And you've got to wiggle out of those because most of them do not respond to a yes or no answer. Well, of course not. And I would say that's the famous question, are you still beating your wife? Yes or no? Well, that's not a yes or no question. And I think that what you have to do is properly explain your answer. So you never start out by saying, even if it's yes or no, what you start out by saying is, if by that question, counselor, and let me understand it, you are trying to intimate that I ever was a beater of my wife, the answer is no, I have never, ever beaten my wife. So now we can talk about your question again. Yes, you've dismantled their box. Dismantled the box. And I think that it's perfectly fine to say the way you've constructed the predicate, counselor, the predicate is inadequate for a yes or no answer. I cannot do that. Can we move ahead now? If you'd like, counselor, I'll teach you how to ask questions. I'm sure that'll go over really big. Well, you know what? Not my problem. And it's not your problem either. If they want to play that game, slap them around. You can also stop a deposition, by the way. If you think they're being rude, just say, I'm sorry, we'll do this with a judge. Last time I did that, and I slapped the table and said, I'm getting up, we'll do this with a judge. He says, okay, let's take five minutes. We'll rethink this. So that's a very interesting thing. I think I'm beginning to understand it because there's a perceived power thing here. You're the doctor and you did something wrong and now there's a lawyer here and you better do everything they say or they're going to be really nasty to you. You're saying, no, no, this is the game and you can push back. Absolutely. When I walk into that courtroom, they pretend like they own that. Yes, but he's acting as the expert. That's different, yeah. And we're not talking about... But well, no, if, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We were talking about the deposition. We're talking about the the deposition. What he's telling me is that I don't have to feel like I have to be rolled over by right. this lawyer who's trying to play tricks. I can push back and say, I want to get the truth out. And if you want the truth, here's how it went. I'm not going to do these silly questions with you. And your lawyer will be objecting and jumping in, things like that. But, you know, at a certain point in time, don't say things because you know where this is going to come back. They will read it back to the jury as a challenge to what you then say in court. The reason they take deposition is for impeachment purposes, to go back and say, this is what you said. Doctor, you remember when we had that deposition on April 13th? You were there, right, doctor? I had to fly to Michigan. It was cold. You sat there. Let me quote from your thing. What I always do on cases like that, is that what you said, doctor? It's perfectly fine to say things like, Read the entire set of questions, counselor, so that the true meaning is brought forward. They may abstract a piece 
out of a much larger line of questioning. There's lots of ways that you do not have to be whipped on this thing. It seems like there's a science to this art. And I just want to know, as an aside, is there somewhere I can go to see some depositions, learn a little bit more about it? Because yeah. I'd like to go to my deposition, not a sort of a lamb to the slaughter. I'd like to feel like I've developed a few skills here. I know the game. Is there anywhere you can go for that? Certainly, we've asked many times with our cases, could we have, let's say, a medical student or a resident attend the DEP for their own educational purposes? Almost always the lawyers will let that happen. And so we're happy to help train people that way. There are people that you can hire, and if your attorney is smart, they will bring in another attorney from their office to badger you in deposition, in practice deposition, to ask these tough questions to see how you'll respond to it. See, the real problem is there's a reason that a bull in bullfighting is never let in the ring more than twice, because he learns where the matador stands behind that cape. Well, that's just like lawyers and doctors in deposition. As soon as you know where he stands behind that cape, you can gore his ass. And I think that's perfectly fine. Should we move on? Yes, yeah, so they do your deposition and then they type it up and then they send it to you and you look at the deposition notes and you go, boy, there's a couple of these things I could have answered better. What do I do with that? <laughs> no, <point?"> no. <laughs> yes, what you do is you learn from that. The reason they send you a dep to read and sign is that the court reporter took it down correctly. Not that you made a mistake. What I would do is take any areas that you are uncomfortable with, circle them, and show them to your attorney. But the reason that you don't waive signature is that you look and actually read, because sometimes they've put down not when it should have been is or something like that. The people taking down the transcript are not always right. And by the way, they do things phonetically. So you've gotten some strange things back, particularly disease entities, things like that, which aren't correct. So this is not the opportunity to engrandize or improve upon an answer. Absolutely. That's not why they sent you a deposition for signature. That time was before you gave your dep, and now you learn about it before you have to go to court. But the only reason they send you deps to read and sign are to correct actual mistakes of the court reporter. So we don't run out of time. Let's get on to the plaintiff's deposition. Plaintiff's deposition, can you be there? Yes, you can. Should and you be there? Absolutely. And I don't know an insurance company that will not pay for the doctor to go sit at the deposition of that doctor expert who is opposing him. And you really are important at that moment in time. You and your expert should be writing the questions for your attorney that he will ask this expert. The other thing is you sit three feet away and look at him the entire time. Stare him in the eye. Stare Her him in, in, the the, eye. in the eye. And I think that it's important. The other thing is there should be no deposition taken in emergency medicine anymore where both sides are not presented the ASEP disclaimer statement about what should be in your qualifications to be an expert. It's called the Expert Witness Reaffirmation Statement of the American College of Emergency Physicians. It's got 10 points there. What you do, give a copy to your attorney. If your attorney doesn't know about that piece of paper, you may have a bigger problem than you know, but make sure they have one and they ask that person those 10 points and that they agree with them, have them sign it and notarize it. Because the last one says, and doctor, you would have no problem with your deposition being sent 
to the American College of Emergency Physicians Ethics Committee for review. Well, what if the other side said, we don't choose to acknowledge this organization and we don't choose to sign this document? That's fine. Let me just do this again, doctor. You are being offered the opportunity to do what your college recommends. I'm not a member. Oh, you're not a member. So you're not a member of the most important organization. We'll note that, too, for the jury, doctor. And you're obviously afraid to have your testimony reviewed by colleagues in the field. And I that's object, fine. your honor. I, that's <laughs> fine. This. But understand this, doctor. The first issue at trial will be your refusal to sign this statement guaranteeing your honesty. Thank you very much, doctor. No more questions. Oh, my gosh. Okay, let's say that you're at this deposition and the plaintiff's expert gives testimony that you think is just absolutely and completely bogus. What are your options? This expert is clearly out to lunch. Yeah. Uh, First of all, you never do anything during the actual time of that particular case. What you do is your expert is going to give deposition as well. He will have to answer everything that was said and the scientific proof to go along with it. And then you lay in wait, because once the case is over, win, lose, or draw, then you want that deposition sent to the Ethics Committee. Now, Rick raised a very interesting question. What if they're not a member? That doesn't mean the Ethics Committee can't read it and pass on it. And that doesn't mean that they do not have standing to say that this is wrong. Here's the other thing. There is now something called the Daubert Challenge. And if you're not aware of Daubert v. Merrill Dow, that's an important case. And in Daubert, and most states recognize Daubert, and that is if it's junk science, if it's science undefended, that it is not a position that a reasonable group of physicians would take. That's called junk science, and the judge can actually direct a verdict based on junk science. Well, our time is running out, so we, let's focus on uh, a few last really important points here. So one of these, Greg, is that we do go through this process and your lawyer comes out and says they want to settle. Let's settle. And you think, no way, I didn't do anything wrong and this is bogus and I want you to fight the case. What are your options? Yeah, my view of settlement is that it is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It's not about the money, it's about the amount. If you can get it off the table for $10,000 and when you think about your time and your effort and everything else it's okay with me. I think a doctor has to know when settlement is not a bad thing. Problem with doctors is they think they bought insurance to protect their honor. No, if you want to protect your honor, buy a gun, get a rapier. You bought insurance to protect your asset base. And so this is a financial question at a certain point in time. Now, I know those people who get overly bent about this end of thing. Understand this, going into a trial... You never know what a jury's going to do. It's never 100%. Let me ask you a question, Mel. Do elephants fly? That's not my experience. <laughs> well, understand, you haven't seen every elephant. And the courtroom is the only place in America where elephants might be able to fly. And I've seen decisions which I could not understand. The science was perfectly clear. Go the wrong direction by the way, both ways, 
And so sometimes settlement is not a bad option. If the glove doesn't fit, you must must acquit. But what about states where you've got a three-strike rule kind of thing that every time you lose one of these things, it's a ding against you and at some point it's a problem? Is just settling always the best, or can you just say, no, this is wrong, I need to take it before a jury of people who couldn't get out? Well, we have lots of ways of getting around that. For example, it's almost never just the doctor involved. It's the doctor and the hospital and something else. And we've actually gone and said, what if the hospital takes it all on itself so that there's a zero dollar reported for the doctor? I'll take it. (laughs) That's exactly right. If you don't think that doesn't go on all the time, in fact, these discussions happen all the time where the lawyer will say, listen, we'll transfer it all to the corp, take it off the doctor, same amount of money, we'll be out of here today. You know what? It's a different deal. By the way, if you're the insurance company, and I've been in this role, where we could settle something for 40000 bucks, which was a dicey case, guy says, no, nah, we're going to take this to the limits. I said, here, as your representative of the insurance company, I'll give you a check for $40,000. Here it is. Go finish the defense. But if you lose more than that, it's your butt. Then you've got to take the money out of the bank and pay for it. You know what? All your partners contributed to that pool. When you lose, everybody's rate goes up. So think about that very hard. This is a business. And if you don't think about it in business terms, you don't understand what they're thinking. And that's how we convince them to do things. Most lawyers are not malignant about this. It's just the money. Okay, we decided now that we're not going to settle. We're going to go to court. Greg, tell us what we need to know. Well, first of all, a court is a theater of the absurd, of which you are given a chance. In fact, you're given no choice but to participate. Doctors always get on their high horse about, well, this isn't fair, and it ought to be doctors. Shut up. Nobody cares. This is the way we solve business problems in the United States. But if you're going to do it, do it right. Show up every day. Make sure you're visible. Have your wife there. Make sure she's introduced. If you don't think it didn't work for John Dean in the Nixon hearings, you're wrong. Everybody looked at that blonde. And you get the legal pad there and you're taking notes. And you're taking notes and you're advising your counsel and you look like you mean business. This is where you wear your decent suit or your coat and jacket. You're not going to be showing up in a polyester leisure suit. Don't wear the Rolex, though. Yeah, don't wear the Rolex and show up, look right, be there, pay attention. And, God, whatever you do, when you're being asked questions, sound like a human being. Sound like you care. Sound like you did the best you could. There's no better line in court than, you know, if it had been my mother or father, I'd have treated them the same way. Look, we are running out of time, unfortunately. This, to me, has been one of the best CDs we've ever done. I know that I've said that before, but this, my, I have not been so focused on a topic, and I haven't gone to court and been sued, but it focuses the mind. Let me do the quick summary. We'll get your quick comments as we go. First of all, we talked about you've screwed up, or at least you believe you've screwed up. Saying sorry is okay. It's not the same as admitting guilt. I think that was very important. You don't need to go into the details when you do this, and there's a whole science that's developing about saying sorry in as an individual and as a group, so we don't have time to go through it here. Don't change the chart, though. That was the key thing, and a real pull. Do not go back after the fact five years later and start diddling on that chart. That is a bad idea. But we did say it's okay to add to a chart. We did say that if you remember something two days later, filling out a little piece of paper and saying, and here are the other things that was going on, and I remember this, and having that in the chart is okay. But changing the chart is an absolute no-no. 
Remember that QI and this stuff that we do in the department, in the hospital, is not discoverable in most states except for Nevada, which is probably <laughs> – I'm not moving there. Therefore, you don't have to worry about this. Be involved in that process. It's important for a medicine and doing risk management and QI and all this stuff is good. What I did learn is that having your privileges restricted is bad. And that will be asked in court, so don't get them restricted. I don't know how you go about not getting them If you can avoid it. Don't do that. Don't talk to your colleagues about the case. That's another one. So you can tell your talk to your colleagues, I feel really bad, I'm getting sued. But don't talk to them about the details of the case because Greg tells us, you know, you're going to be asked that. And those people that you told about exactly how you screwed up may be asked to come and talk in the court, and that would not be a good idea. So try and avoid that as much as possible. You can work on getting the best lawyer. You can work on getting the best expert. Don't just accept what you're given. If you're not comfortable, talk to your insurance carrier and say, I think there's a better expert here and I think there's a better lawyer for this case. So you can talk to them about this. Look the part when you're getting deposed was one of the things. And there's a whole science about these depositions and it's okay to ask to be prepped about how you should be deposed and get pimped by some other lawyer in that same group and be put on the hot seat before it's the real deal. And we also said after they send you the summary, this is not when you rewrite what you've to try and redo it. This is just about making sure the facts that you stated were actually the ones you stated. We also talked about being present at the plaintiff expert deposition. Look them in the eye. Give them the cold glare so that they know that you're a person and that they can't just say bad things. And this is a business, and this is what it came back to over and over again. This is a business, and understand it's a business. And when it comes to settling... Often that is the correct business decision. And this is not Braveheart. This is not about you showing your testosterone and it's a business at this point and you need to get out with as little damage as possible is what it's about. And then when you go to court, a few pearls that we just went over, show up every day, be visible, take notes, look the part. When you're talking, sound like you give a rat's petunia. You may actually be at this point bored. I find it hard to believe, but you may be bored, but do not look bored. And wearing the right garb and looking the part, do not have the gold chain and the bling and the Rolex and you look like a complete dork. You can take it too far. And you're suggesting, let me ask, why bring the wife? Why is that important? Or the kid. Do you bring your kid as well? Because does that make you look more human? Why are I we doing you this? I think you should rent a nursing mother. You know, <laughs> Bring the baby at the breast. I think that you have to portray yourself as a caring physician. The jury is going to try to assess your motivation, and I think they're really looking for, is this a good person here? The largest study ever done on this found that if they sue just the hospital, the plaintiff could win maybe 50% of the time. If you sue the doctor and the hospital, it goes down to about, oh, 20, 30% of the time. If it's just the doctor, no other institution, no big institution if it's a human being that they have to put the sanction on, then it dropped down to 15 or 20% of the time that they lose. And I think that if you put the whole picture together, if you're sitting on a jury, what are the things that would move you in one direction or another? And knowing that this physician is a human, he's got a wife, he's got kids, they don't have to be there every day. But you know what? If they're introduced and the attorney has a perfect right to do that, I think that's perfectly fine. I'm sure, again, there is an entire science about how you answer questions and uh, like the deposition that you can get help pimped by your lawyer and their group and you can go into this in more detail. But I thought that was an absolutely fantastic summary of what to do when you get sued. Wine of the month. Let's do it. Let's do it fast, baby. Wine of the month. This is going to be fast. This hit me. I am not a big Pinot Grigio man. 
but I was introduced to one the other day. I've still got the little tag from the bottle. It's Gabbiano, Gabbiano Pinot Grigio. It is now in several major importers here in the United States, and you can get it at a lot of the supermarkets for about 11 bucks a bottle. And I'll tell you right now that if I put that one next to a 22 or a $25 one, you could not tell the difference. It's fantastic. Well, I'm going to get that one because I love Pinot Grigio. Greg, I thought you did good. You've done month. good, real, real, real good. good. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, folks, that's another issue, and so long for now. We'll talk with you next month. Bye-bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the uh, CD, but it's time for the all-important and all-new outtake section. You think we get it right every time? Well, you would be incorrect. I'll show you. Hello, welcome. Rick Mack. <laughs> Rick Mack who? <laughs> He's forgotten his own bloody name. Yeah. Hey, Rick Mack. <laughs> I, I have a hard time beginning. I really yeah, do. You really do. Well, well, uh, over and over. <clears throat> I'm well, going to say that again, Dave. You have to get that out. <laughs> Go. I hear breathing. Who's breathing? Me. Just try to stop breathing. <laughs> Just trying to inhale. <laughs> and you are invited to particip- participate. Should you participate? <laughs> <laughs>